We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. If you'd like to open up your Bibles to Exodus 20 this morning. Teaching on one of the more familiar passages in Scripture, even to people who are not typically church-going, most have heard of the Ten Commandments. We're going to get into these over the next three Sundays. We're going to spread it out and just look. I think the last time we went through all of these, we went one Sunday at a time and did several weeks, 10 or 12 weeks, and we're going to move a little more uh, quickly this time, but still taking some time to pause and think about what the Lord is saying, what he means, what he desires for us to understand in the Ten Commandments. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And we'll pause there. That's as far as we're going to get this morning. I was thinking reading over this that every Easter season, I get in the mood to watch a certain movie. It's usually the week or the weekend before Resurrection Sunday. It's always the same movie. I say to the family, you know what we should watch? And then often joined by Cheryl, we will break into an obnoxious operatic intonation, the Ten Commandments, yes! which if you've heard it, it begs off the theme song of the movie. Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 classic movie, referred to by one critic as the daddy of all contemporary religious instruction on the silver screen, <laughs> which is a rare statement. And it's also called blockbuster spiritual entertainment in every way. Wow, 1956, people flocked to see this movie when it was re-released 10 years later, people flocked to see the movie again. And even after that, I believe it was 1973 that it began to be aired every year on ABC on that Passover weekend. I think every year but one, 1999, I don't know why they didn't that year, but every year but that year, up to the present year, every Passover weekend, that movie has, has aired on TV. That was 1956. This is now. And I was thinking about, can you imagine if that same movie was released today? I'm talking the same, not a, not a remake of it, not a revamping, but the exact same movie as Cecil B. DeMille produced, would people respond to it the way they did in the 50s and the 60s? See, that was a time when law and order was recognized and even appreciated in our country as opposed to today. It was also in the midst of the civil rights movement, which is interesting timing. In fact, the movie premiered one year before the Civil Rights Act of 1957 was passed. 
And as you think about it, you gotta realize that those decades were not the good old years or the good old days for everybody. I'm not suggesting that we go back to the 50s and 60s, but it was an interesting dichotomy that on the one hand, lawlessness or, or lawfulness was recognized and law and order was to at least a civil degree respected as it is not so much today. And yet, sadly, generations reproduce, every generation reproduces the iniquity of the fathers of the previous generations. So we can always say, oh, wasn't it so much better back in the 80s? Wasn't life just great back in the 50s? And for some, it may have been, well as for others, it absolutely was not. But if you think about the overall general attitude of the public toward law and order in the 50s versus today, we are once again in a time of civil unrest. Although that civil unrest is not very peaceful, a time of riots, a time of pressure cooker strife in our society. I think we could all use a refresher course on law and order. What do you think, Andy? <laughs> I think it's time to review what law and order really is about. You see, law and order is not a concept that originates with man. It's a concept that originates with God. And he is the establisher of law and order. In fact, with the Ten Commandments, don't miss that it begins in verse one, then God spoke. So this is not Moses coming back down from the mountain, having been the only one to hear, but they all heard, as we talked about on Wednesday night, they all heard. The entire company of the people of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai, heard the Lord speak through these commands. In case anyone might ever question the source material, the Bible makes the speaker of the Ten Commandments unequivocal, then God spoke. And it makes me think about what Jesus said about what it would be like in the last days. He said, Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. God spoke the Ten Commandments. God spoke the law, this is the beginning of the laws. We're gonna continue on through it in Exodus and, and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of Torah law, God's law. But God began by speaking that we would be sure of where it was coming from and yet now in these days, because lawlessness is, un, is increased, the love of many people or most people's love will grow cold. Note that order, lawlessness freezes out love. Lawlessness freezes love. Chaos chills compassion. But you know what? The converse is true as well, and this is good news for us this morning. Lawfulness warms up love. Lawfulness warms love. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about dotting all your I's, crossing your T's, and driving 55. I'm talking about an attitude, a comprehension, an understanding of what the Ten Commandments can really do for you, for me, in our lives, the purpose of them. And that purpose is to begin habit-forming love. That as we even follow, obey, listen to, adhere to these commandments, these 10 words, as it were, that it will develop in us behavioral love. And often that's how it works in humanity. Behavior changes mentality. 
Sometimes you just gotta start behaving a certain way for the mentality, for the heart to change. And so God gives these behavioral warm-ups to love. This is about love. These 10 words put into practice will work against the icy cold, heart-hardening indifference of the sin nature that is so at work. In fact, it is the root of all the crises that we're seeing in the world today, the sin nature. And by the way, these aren't 10 commandments. They're literally the Aseret Hadevarim in Hebrew, which is the 10 words, the 10 words. That's how scripture describes them, defines them. In Exodus 34, 28, and I believe this is in, in your notes there. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 13. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse four. You'll see the actual phrase, the 10 words, the Aseret Hadevarim. And again, God spoke all these words. The Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt, when they, when they began to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they used a phrase that was a direct parallel to Aseret Hadevarim, and that is Decalogia or Decalogia, the Decalogue. The Decalogue, which means the 10 words. And so Jesus, taking these 10 words, comes along and he teaches a direct spiritual connection between lawlessness and lovelessness, which again, we're watching play out in our country explicitly in cities across the world, but also implicitly, sadly, in the straining of relationships that's taking place today. Cheryl and I were talking about this. It's amazing how mean-spirited people are right now and how you recognize that in, in ways you wouldn't normally. Uh, you call for a haircut and there's rudeness on the other end of the line. I'm not talking about where I go for a haircut. You contact, you know, we're, we're still at work on our adoption process and we've had some interaction with the uh, USCIS, which is the immigration office in Kansas City, Missouri. You would not believe how they've spoken to us on the phone. And we, we hang up and we sit back and go, we're just calling for a status report and we get chewed out. And we're seeing this kind of behavior from people everywhere. It's, it shouldn't surprise us because it's the increase of lawlessness that causes most people's love to grow cold to where people don't care anymore, to where rudeness becomes the standard. And as we face all of these things in this difficult time, man, we need these 10 words now more than ever. So please don't just let this be a review of the old 10 commandments that we all know about, thou shalt not this or thou shalt not that. We need to dive in deep and consider what the Lord is saying because brothers and sisters, this will change our hearts. This will keep our hearts soft and warm and loving even at a time that Jesus promised would go the other direction. Now, speaking of Jesus, he gives the perfect outline for the 10 words, and it's in Matthew 22. So why don't you keep your fingers in Exodus 20 and turn over to Matthew chapter 22. And you might even wanna put a Bible marker there because we're gonna refer back to it over the next three weeks. Jesus lays it out for us and outlines the 10 words, and here's how he does it. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Now, see, I just love that right there. Jesus silenced the Sadducees. How'd he do it? Was he rude? Was he obnoxious? No, he just spoke truth. 
He just asked them questions that they couldn't answer and they ended up silenced because of it. And so the Pharisees gathered themselves together. And one of them, a liar, uh, I'm sorry, a lawyer, <laughs> a lawyer asked him a question testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Hey, there are 613. He's going to get this one wrong. We got him. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Jesus doesn't quote from the 10 words. He doesn't go to the 10 commandments, the, the source of the entire law that, that begins. Right. He doesn't go there. He goes to a verse more personally significant to the Jews than anything in the Decalogue itself. He goes to the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, hear. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus draws from that, he says, that's the one. That's the most important commandment, love God. But then he continues, verse 39, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He draws that out of Leviticus 19. So again, he doesn't go to the Decalogue. He goes to Leviticus 19, 18 that says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, which is great because the basis of love is God himself. You shall love, why? Because I'm the Lord. Oh, see, he's the Lord and he is love. Therefore, you shall do the same. And in Matthew 22, verse 40, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus calls just two verses of all of Torah to say, this is it. This is the bottom line. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the summation of the entire law and the prophets. You can sift it all down. You can boil it all down and you come to that as the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures right there. Love God and love people. And if you do that, the rest will begin to fall in place. But human nature needs a little help because we have trouble starting with love and God knows that. So he gives us behavior that if we begin to practice the behavior, we will begin to love as Jesus laid out. If we are behavioral in our worshipful approach to God, we find ourselves then loving God. If we're behavioral in our approach to one another, we find ourselves actually kind of liking each other, actually loving each other because that's what we have put into practice. God's our maker. He knows how we work. Now, to clarify, we're going to take this as our outline, Matthew uh, 22, and to clarify it, the, the 10 words elegantly are divided into loving God, verses 1 through 11 of Exodus 20, and loving your neighbor, verses 12 through 17. So roughly the first half of the commandments are all about loving God. And then the second half of the commandments are all about loving your neighbor with a hinge verse in between that I'll point out in just a second. Love God, verses 1 through 11. Love your neighbor. And by the way, to clarify it, even within the Decalogue itself, if you look, verse one will start off, or verse two, when God begins to speak, starts off with, I am the Lord your God. So this section's gonna be about God. 
but we notice that the whole thing concludes in verse 17 with your neighbor. So we're gonna end with your neighbor. We begin with the Lord your God, we end with your neighbor, and love is the deal all the way through. So to clarify, for, for our purposes, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna divide the first half. So we're, we're actually gonna take it in three parts. Now there are, there are two, love God, love your neighbor. We're gonna do it in loving the Lord your God in two parts, and then we'll finish with love your neighbor uh, a few weeks out. So love the Lord your God. Today is part one. Part one, loving God in relationship. Loving God in relationship. Because, again, he is where love and an unfettered lawfulness find their source. He's where this will all come from. So looking at the Decalogue, the, the 10 words, verse two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and that is the basis for the whole thing. Who he is and what he's done. It's always who he is and what he's done. And he begins by saying, Yahweh ka'eloche, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. In case anybody's missing it, Yahweh ka'eloche. And he repeats this ubiquitous name five times in the first half of this document. Five times in the section about loving God, he will repeat, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh ka'eloche. Five times. Five is the number of grace in the Bible. And so we see embedded in the commandments the grace of God. You can't speak the name of God without recognizing the grace of God. And because the law of God comes from the love of God, he says again five times, Yahweh ka Eloche. Had a conversation with a brother of mine, and I won't name Jim because, you know, it was a private conversation between the two of us. <laughs> we were talking about the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and, and he, at first he sent me a text, and Jim will do this. He'll fire off a text to me, and it'll be like filled with these curious and interesting questions, and I have no idea what he's really asking, and so I might, I think I'm just going to start answering just bizarre stuff, just for fun, but it's great because I think it's Jim's way of making me call him so I can clarify, and then we have a great conversation, but we were talking about the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and the question that came up was, is the Old Testament rigged against us, whereas the New Testament is rigged for us? The Old Testament, you have the law, and the prophets, but what we don't have is the Holy Spirit poured out on the people. And then the New Testament, oh, we have Jesus and grace, and here comes the Spirit who enables us to do all the things that we're told in the Hebrew Scriptures. One's rigged against, one is rigged for. Is that the deal? And I've been thinking about this. And I think that it's more that it's not that the Hebrew Scriptures are rigged against us as much as they are revealing of us. That the Hebrew scriptures are not here to swindle us, as it were, but to school us. As Paul wrote, Galatians 3.24, we read this last week, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Guess what? Just because we're not under a tutor doesn't mean we haven't learned from the tutor. I am no longer under Miss Basil, my first grade teacher. But I still remember things that she taught me. 
You know, I, I'm no longer under any of those teachers that I grew up listening to and learning from. Jim, your students are no longer under you, and yet your influence is deep in their lives whether they recognize it or not. See, that's what the tutor does. So it's not that we wipe out or wash out or throw out the tutor. Faith has come. We're just not under the, the oversight of that tutor because now we walk by faith, and now these things begin to work out in our lives. So the bottom line is that the, the 10 words are not irrelevant. The 10 words, they're only problematic if you think that trying to perfect them can save you. Like they, they can't. You can't be saved by perfect, because you can't perfect them. But the 10 words are still functional, completely functional in our lives. Listen to this. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think I came to abolish Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That is to do what none of us could do. To keep perfectly what none of us could keep perfectly. He said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on to say, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You gotta have a perfect track record to get in. Well, Lord Jesus, I can't have a perfect track record. That's right, so you put faith in me because he says, I have a perfect track record. So we're not under the tutor, but we are led to faith in Jesus who kept it all. As Jesus said, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Guess what? The 10 words are his words. Then God spoke and they will not pass away. By the way, it's interesting to me that the fifth time that God says in the Decalogue, Yahweh ka Elohe, I am the Lord your God, the fifth time he says it is in the fifth word or the fifth commandment. If you just wanna take a, a sneak peek at that one, it's verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And that's the transition word. If you're thinking the transition between loving God and loving your neighbor is Sabbath, no, Sabbath has to do with loving God. And again, we'll talk about that. But the transition into, from loving God to loving your neighbor is, is the command to honor your father and mother. That's the hinge because, because the parental relationship is supposed to symbolize and teach the relationship that we share with our father God. And so it's vital both to learning how to love our neighbor, but also learning how to love God. Is that relationship we have with parents. And then that leads into our relationship with each other as siblings, as fellow children of our one father. Well, we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. But let's look for a moment at the love relationship with God. Part one, looking at the first three words. And the first word is in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, my intent in going into this is I began to think through and, and study through the, the 10 words again. I thought, okay, this, this is probably going to be just more of a review for all of us. 
And yet the things that are here take us to a place I didn't expect to go. The whole idea of loving God in relationship is far more personal in the Ten Commandments than you might expect. And when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, this is an only one personal proposition. It's personal. You shall, no one else. I want to be your only one, is what he's saying. And so note this, three things to jot down today. Number one, loving God is exclusive. Loving God is exclusive. Now get this, in the Hebrew, there is no verb for to have. There's no to have verb. That's not how they say it. We translate to English, you shall have no other gods before me. But that's not how it reads in the Hebrew. In fact, the Hebrew is far more possessive in the way that it comes off. It's yee-yay, <laughs> yee-yay. <laughs> the Hebrew phrase is yee-yay, which is, we would say to have, they would say to be to, to be to. In other words, you shall be to no other gods before me. You shall be to me and I shall be to you. That, that is beautiful to me. It's possessive, it's, it's exclusive. That, that's the way we think about our love relationships. At least that's the ideal before we get into the relationship. This is what everyone wants. A natural, possessive exclusivity in a relationship. Now, I know when I use the word possessive, some might say, oh, you're talking about being possessive. That's controlling. I'm not talking about controlling or lording it over or authoritarian abusiveness or ownership oppression. But don't we all desire, if you think about the ideal human male-female relationship, don't we all desire that sense of exclusive specialness just to one other person? That I would be special to my wife in a way that I am not special to anybody else. And she is exclusively special to me in a way that nobody else is. That's what I mean by the unselfish possession of or belonging to or exclusivity with another person. We all long for that. Now that's hard to find. And oftentimes it turns into controlling or it turns into a, a, a jealous rage. And that's not war, that's unhealthy, that's human, that's sin. But to be in an exclusive relationship with another, for me to say, I am to her and she is to me. She's my wife and no one else's. I'm her husband and no one else's. It's the marital ideal. The marital ideal is the closest human relationship we have to the divine relationship into which God invites us. And when a marriage is beautiful and sweet and restful and everything's working well and you're reading each other right and you're understanding each other completely and I know that's never happened but if if <laughs> but on the best day of the best marriage that's a picture of what God's calling you to that's the idea that's what he wants with you and for you now again, the dance of marital unity, wow, that takes years to choreograph without clumsily stepping all over each other's feet. And even after years of being in marriage, Cheryl and I are now 34 years and we still are learning how to dance together. 
But the point is that, that God uses that marital sense with us. You shall be to no other God before me. You shall be to me specially and singularly, just me and you. Loving God is exclusive. You don't date around on the Lord. You don't play the field behind his back. And he's so serious about this that when Israel begins to invite other gods into their relationship, he calls it whoring or harlotry. Exodus 34, verse 11, I'll just read it to you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I'm gonna drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going or it will become a snare in your midst. He says, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their Asherim for you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. <laughs> Hold on to that. I'll come back and deal with the name Jealous in just a minute. But verse 15, he says, otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They would play the harlot with their gods and, and you'll sacrifice to their gods. Someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods, no other, just you and me, that's it. Don't play the field. And so the exclusivity of the love of God calls for the same ideal as the marital union. That, that same expectation on the day of the marriage, as she says, I do, and he says, I do, there is an expectation of undivided faithfulness. That's why we're entering into that covenant. Because I expect her to be unto me and, and for me to be unto her exclusive and faithful. And that is how the Lord views it from his perspective. Absolutely, 100% exclusive. So much so that even romantically, God sings as the groom in the Song of Solomon, verse two of chapter two, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. All else are thorns, but my girl, oh, she's a beauty, she's the lily. You know, oftentimes we sing the song, he's the lily of the valley, talking about Jesus, but in the Song of Songs, you're the lily of the valley. You're the unique lily that he loves, that he desires, that he wants exclusively for himself. Or as Jake read in the communion meditation, Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church, the called out, the ecclesia in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy, that is set apart, exclusive and blameless. By the way, something to note about the 10 commandments, every single one, though they are spoken to a people, every command is singular, singular. You, Rick, you shall have no other gods before me. You, he says, over and over in the Decalogue, he is talking to you, 
even as we all hear together, he's talking to me. You could say he only has eyes for you. He only desires you. And he wants you, by the way, to see him just as he is. Go to the second of the 10 words. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now we could talk about all kinds of idolatry and gods and idols and symbols and all that stuff. That's not where I'm gonna go right now. I wanna get to the heart of what he's saying when he says, you shall not make for yourself any idol. God, when he first began to reveal himself as Yahweh, as I am, to the people of Israel, he did so as completely separate from what Sarna calls the world of his creation. As he began to present himself and make himself known, he didn't use any created thing to express what he was like, to show himself to his people. Sarna says, Holy, he was wholly other than what the human mind can conceive or the human imagination depict. Therefore, any material representation of divinity is prohibited. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter four for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter four. I want you to see this with your own eyes, what God has to say here. In Deuteronomy chapter four, picking up in verse 12, you note that Moses is recounting to the people what had taken place. And he said, the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. No form, nothing to say, oh, that's what God looks like. He, he's kind of like a strong ox. He's like a lion in its roaring. He's like, a bird taking flight. No, no, God didn't present himself in any of that way, no likeness whatsoever at this point. And verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter four, he said, so watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. He says, don't do that, why? That's corrupt. Why is that corrupt? Because you take things that are gonna die and you try to say they represent the eternal God. You take things that are natural and flesh that are gonna waste away and rot and say, oh, there's a picture of God. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Now listen, this is absolutely vital if you really truly want to love God. Second, not only is loving God exclusive, Loving God must be spiritual. Loving God is spiritual. Now I've said many times over the years, that doesn't mean esoteric. It doesn't mean ghost-like or 
ephemeral or, 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 or you know, something you can't really get your fingers on. No, loving God must be spiritual, meaning he must be realized, he must be experienced, he must be known in spiritual, non-physical ways. That's what he's drawing us to. And visual representations of God only get in the way, and by the way, they personally offend him. You ever had a caricature drawing made of your face? You know, they used to do that like at Disneyland or at theme parks where you can sit down and the artist will do some kind of caricature. I had that, that done one time, and when he was all finished, I took a look at it and said, wait, my forehead is nowhere near that big. <laughs> and this was back when I had bangs. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. And of course, the caricature artists, they, they, they draw out things. If your nose happens to be a little larger maybe than the average nose, they're going to make it huge, you know? If your ears tend to stand out a bit, they're going to be like wing flaps on the sides of your heads. I mean, that's, that's what they do. And we, call it, we accept that, but if you wanted to have an actual representation of yourself, you would not go to a caricature artist. Any visual representation we would try to make of God would be a caricature, a cartoon. It would not represent authentically who he is. He must be realized spiritually. Created things can't come close to fairly expressing the creator. Think of it this way. He created everything. What are you going to pick that is him? I mean, if, if you want to get some sense of the glory of God, take it all in, all at once, and you're still coming up short. So he says, don't do that. Don't, don't make those physical representations of me. Sun, moon, stars above. Can't, can't express me. Animals, humans on earth, creatures in the sea, even the storms and the waves and the mountains cannot represent him. Only one ever fairly rightly represented God because he was God. John 1:18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness, that is, the mystery of God. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, and he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. And it's perfect. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. So God is a long-haired, blonde-haired, blue-eyed surfer. Because we've all seen the paintings, right? That's, that's Jesus. Isn't it interesting? God chose to come in the flesh at a time where there was no way we could make any visual representation of him. We have no digital files, no photos, no legitimate paintings of Jesus. We, have no, we can make guesses. You know what the closest we can get to in the Bible that we know of a physical attribute of Jesus? That he had a beard. That's the only thing we know. How do we know that? Because in Isaiah 50, 51, right in there, it tells us that his beard was plucked out. We have no other picture of Jesus. If I were to try to describe what I think he was like, I would say Middle Eastern. Probably a good Jewish nose. I don't know how long his hair was. He had some semblance of a beard, something they could grab onto. 
We don't know his eye color. We don't know what his ears look like. We don't know his stature, how tall he was, how short he was, how fat he was, how thin he was. Was he muscular? I mean, people say, well, he was a carpenter. He must have been pretty strapping. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. No visual representation at all. But he is the exact representation of God because he exemplified God in word and in deed and in spirit. And so when we talk about seeing Jesus today, I, I, I see Jesus. Not form, not physique. I, I see Jesus in the fruit of the spirit. I see Jesus in the tenderness that he showed to the woman at the well. I see Jesus in the fire in his eyes when he went after the Pharisees for their harsh lies and their brutal abuse of the people. I see Jesus clearing out the temple because his love for his father was so deep. I see Jesus, but not physically represented. And I remind you again of a passage that we have been reading over and over during this season. Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is, John chapter four, verse 23, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we see God, we see Jesus, not as some form, not as some idol, but as he is, as he presents himself in his word and by his Holy Spirit. And this is so serious, it's followed by a warning clause. Verse five, you shall not worship them, that is idols, or serve them, for I, Yahweh Ka'eloche, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now listen. Two challenging questions arise out of those two verses. Question number one, still talking about loving God must be done spiritually. Question number one, does God get jealous? D does God get jealous? Now, think about the word jealous. That if you read it that way, as it's translated in the Bible, I'm a jealous God, that's, that's an anthropomorphism. That's a, a human attribute that is applied then to God who is beyond human. And I don't, let me just ask, show of hands, and my hand's the first one up, does the idea of God being jealous bother you at all? Has it ever bothered you? Not really, you guys are so much more spiritual than me. Let's just move on to the next point. <laughs> that has bugged me my whole life because jealousy is something we're told not to do. In fact, I believe 1 Corinthians 13 says something about love not being jealous. So how can God be jealous? I don't understand, does God get jealous? You know what it sounds like? It sounds like a husband spurned. Well, he will be. He will be spurned by Israel, just as the world would spurn Jesus, just as even in our Christian lives there are times where we spurn him. Listen, marriage is once again the contextual picture that he's painting here when he says, the Lord your God, who says, I want you to be to me and I will be to you. The Lord your God is a jealous God. In fact, his very name is jealous, as we read earlier. 
jealous, this, this human emotion, when I think of the word jealous, I think of a passionate, angry, controlling, suspicious, over unfaithfulness husband or guy. What have you been doing? Where have you been? Who are you with? I don't trust you. That doesn't sound like God to me. So I have had trouble in my life applying the word jealous. Number one, because God is never suspicious. Do you understand that he can't be suspicious because he already knows what you're doing? He does not suspect your bad behavior. He just sees it. <laughs> so suspicions ride out with God. He knows if someone's going to do something unfaithful, he knows it's going to happen before it happens. But get this. Now, this is so huge. God is jealous, the Bible says, but the word for jealous in the Hebrew is kana. If you're writing it out, Q-A-N-N-A, kana. God is kana. In fact, it's even used as a name for him. His name is kana. You can put that up there with all the names of God. God is kana. That word is only used to describe God in all the Bible. It's not used to describe anyone else. So suddenly it becomes a little less anthropomorphic because it doesn't describe human beings in the Bible. It only describes God. God is kana. And instead of jealous, which is a word that the translators used, and, and it, it, it seems to convey the idea because of this relationship, this exclusive relationship. Listen, kana, instead of jealous, a better definition would be zealous. God is zealous. He is passionately devoted. He is fervent. And the same exact word, kana, is used in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, that says, there will be no increase or end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The kana of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Same word. Zealous, passionate. Does God get jealous? I would say God gets zealous for you. God is passionate for you. He's not controlling and suspicious, but man, he is passionate for his people. He loves you that much. So that explains zealous. But what about the other part? Does God blame the kids visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me. Visiting the iniquity on the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. Now, if God was jealous, I could see how that might roll over, how it might play out, but that's, that's not the case. First of all, he's visiting the iniquity, and the word visiting in the Hebrew, poked, does not mean imposing punishment on. It means looking into. It means inspecting. God is a zealous, passionate, fervent God who is inspecting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, which I've told you before, are the children following the same pattern of sin? And what's marvelous about this is that God comes to every generation on earth so that each generation is not judged for the previous generation. So that each generation is seen for what it is. Each individual. Am I going to follow in the sins of the fathers or am I going to follow the father? 
And the zealous God comes to inspect, to see where we're at. I'm adding this one in here. This passage is not in your, in your notes there, but it's Ezekiel 18, and it is an absolutely hinge point passage in the scripture that explains away the idea that God punishes one generation for the previous generation. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, that would be a lot of fun. Honestly, you get a batch of Costco grapes and they're not so good and you eat one and your kids go, ha, <laughs> That'd be a great joke to play on the kids. But he says, as I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul whose sins will die. Ezekiel 18, 20, the person whose sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But God ends the whole discussion with Ezekiel by saying, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. But he comes to every generation and the question is will this generation repeat the sins of the previous generation so we all have opportunity to walk with God now in what may be a nod to the millennial kingdom he makes this comment in verse 6 but showing loving kindness grace to thousands thousands of what thousands of generations is the implication to those who love me and keep my commandments. And there is a generation coming for a thousand years where grace is guaranteed for all. Loving God is exclusive. Loving God is spiritual. And finally, the third word, and we're gonna end with this one today, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God, Yahweh Ka'eloche, in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. I absolutely adore the name Cheryl. I love the name Cheryl. But not on any other woman. I can meet a Cheryl who is not my wife and it does not have the same ring to it. No offense, it's not a bad, it's a fine name. It works, you know, if it works for you, it works for me, that's great. It's good for identification's sake. Oh, yes, that's, that's Cheryl, but it doesn't sound the same. It doesn't ring the same. Less, does, does Donna sound the same on any other woman? There you go. Well said. It's a different sound. You see, it's the person behind the name. That's what matters. It, it's, it's who the name represents. Our names, your name and my name, are like shorthand, or to be more culturally accurate, like memes or texting abbreviations. That's what our names are like. Our names are not who we are, but they implicate who we are. So when I hear Cheryl's name spoken when she's nearby, or I'm thinking about her, and I hear Cheryl, it does something to my heart that's different. If I meet or talk to any other Cheryl, it doesn't do the same thing because it's a different identity. And our names do that. 
I love 2 Corinthians 5, 16, because it's so accurate to how we live. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, and we really don't. Once we know someone, we don't even think about how they look or what they're wearing or, you know, we just, we know them. We enter into this relationship with them. And so he says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, that is, we knew him physically, yet now we know him in this way no longer. We know his heart. We know him. So again, loving God. Loving God is a spiritual thing because true love sees not flesh, but spirit, but it's more. Please get this, when he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, number three, loving God is substantial. Substantial. To say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is far more serious than a teenager texting OMG. It's far more serious than someone thoughtlessly just blurting out God's name as an expletive or, or Jesus or Christ as swear words. Now, don't get me wrong, that is sadly common today. And if someone texts me, OMG, it offends me. And if you do that loosely without thinking about it, maybe today you need to start thinking about it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God, Yahweh, Ka'elohe, in vain. If you casually do that, understand that you are demeaning the one who has invited you with outstretched, nail-scarred hands into an exclusive, spiritual, substantially meaningful relationship. We really need to consider how we speak and how we use God or Jesus or Christ. But again, the idea of the commandment is far greater than the foolish use of profanity that we see so often in common culture. Literally, this phrase, to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is you shall not lift up. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh Ka'elohe to emptiness. You shall not lift up his name to emptiness. The word that is translated vain means empty. It's the word shav in the Hebrew, and it means empty or worthless. You shall not take his name and make it worthless. Lift it up to emptiness. This same word shav is used in Ezekiel 13, uh, verse 6, to declare the delusional false prophets. They see shav. They see emptiness or falsehood. It's used in Job chapter 7, verse 3, where Shav is used to describe a life without substance or meaning, where Job says, I'm allotted months of vanity, Shav. Don't do that to the name of the Lord. It's used in Isaiah 1.13 to speak of empty religion, when the prophet says, bring to me your worthless offerings no longer. It's used in Hosea chapter 10, verse 4, to speak again of the false promises of the false prophets. When God says they speak mere words with worthless oaths, shav, meaningless, empty, worthless, are we going to take Yahweh and Yeshua and put those names in that category of worthlessness and falsehood and vanity and emptiness? We are not invited to a hollow relationship. 
This is not an empty or fictitious interaction. To take God's name in vain is literally to demean and denigrate his spirit. By the way, why don't people ever use Buddha as a swear word? Oh, my Buddha. You, know, you just don't hear that. You don't hear someone say, bail, darn it. <laughs> you don't hear people using Vishnu or Allah. You know why? Because those names have no power. Because those names are empty. Those are hollow names. There's no truth in them. They're nothing but empty names. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That's power, my friends. That's a substantial name. That's a name that when you speak it, it bears power unto itself. Psalm 113, verse three says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Would we just empty out that name of such power and truth and meaning? I'll tell you what happens. Any attempt to profane the name of Yahweh, the name of Yeshua, it comes either from complete and total ignorance, which there's a lot of that, or it comes from the devil himself. That's your source for the misuse of the name of God. But let me ask you personally, do you, do I, lift up God's name to emptiness. Well, I don't use the Lord's name in vain ever, Rick. I don't use that as a swear word. Okay, I understand that. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I identify with and I'm identified by his name, right? I'm identified by the name of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, a Christian. I, I claim to belong to him. And in so claiming, do I represent him? You see, because when I entered into this love relationship with the Lord, I took his name. And we're right back to the marital relationship. I took his name on myself. The name of Christ as my new identity. Have you? Have you taken his name? The name of Christ? And in the way we live our lives, do we live to exalt his name or do our lives empty his name of its power and its truth and its love and its meaning in this world? Ephesians chapter three, verse 14, Paul writes out a beautiful prayer. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be, listen, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is substantial. Loving God is substantial. 
because it's about being filled up with his fullness, the very fullness of his name. Does the world see that in you? Does the world see in me that kind of fullness, a relationship with Jesus that is exclusive and and yet inviting? A, A love of God that is spiritual and yet completely practical. A love of Him that is substantial and yet liberating. That's the intent of the 10 words. That's the kind of relationship that we're talking about. And again, in keeping these commands, love warms up. It it warms the heart of love. I don't know if this bothers you. There's one other word in scripture that used to bother me. And it is the word command. Command. And you know, the more lawless the world, the more words like command and duty and love sound burdensome. This, there's a weight to it, you know. It's commanded. Oh, okay, I guess I better do it. What husband in any relationship would have the right to command his wife to do? I don't I never use that word with Cheryl. Did you make this mor- the bed this morning, Cheryl? Well, no, I didn't, sweetheart. Well, I command you. No, I mean, you can just imagine how that day would go. There's only one in all of history and eternity that has the right to speak command, which is why the Lord begins the 10 words once again, verse two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see what he just did? He begins with love. Then he speaks the 10 words. That's always the pattern with God. He loves first, and then he brings in the commands which help us to love the way he loves. He puts out the love. He shows us, just as Jesus first loved you, Jake mentioned this, and I love this, before you and I were even born, he was already on the cross. He was dying before we lived that when we would come along and live, we could see he loves us. He absolutely loves us. He proved his love for us so that when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, we can say, yeah. When he says in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And that is a loving relationship. So Father, I pray that though we've only gotten three words into the 10, you would begin already to alter our thinking and our behavior that we would begin to pick up these these patterns, these 10 words and, and apply them practically in our lives recognizing as you have taught us that they will develop, cultivate, and nurture love in our hearts. Father, may we keep these words and in so doing, be a people with soft hearts and deep love, even in a world where love is growing cold. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 